Okay, so I think let's get started. Um, I just want to welcome everyone that's here, and I hope that this next hour or so together will be fruitful for you. Um, I'm not the loudest speaker, so if you can't hear me, please just wave or something like that so that I can speak up. Um, just a little bit about me before, before we start. Um, my name is, is Karen, and I'm living in South Africa. Um, I've been living there for the past 24 years now, um, but was uh, born and raised in Canada. Um, yeah, I've got a fellow Canadian here. <laughs> And um, I grew up in the church. My, my dad was a Presbyterian minister, and um, when some kids used to play house um, or play school, I played church. Um, and so, you know, I had a, quite a close relationship with the good, the bad, and the ugly that, that comes with being in ministry. Um, and... One of the things my parents had always encouraged me to do was um, to find experiences that would look good on my, my application for university. And so they encouraged me to become an exchange student. And so um, I was accepted and got the opportunity to choose from about 30 different countries. And I thought, where would be a place I might never otherwise get a chance to go? And which is the furthest place from my mother, you know, seeing as I was 17 years old and you know how those dynamics can be. And so I, I wound up in South Africa, fell in love with the country, and then I fell in love with a boy. Um, and, uh, yeah, we just knew this was it, so... That's the boy. That's the boy. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so I went home, finished finished high school and came back and got married. And so Gavin and I have been in ministry since 1998. Um, we were church planters for 10 years and are now on staff with Dave and Colleen at Fountain Vineyard in Port Elizabeth. And I'm the director of a, of a healing and counseling center um, called Eden Life, which is based out of our church. And so we exist to serve the community because I believe that mental health services are a basic human right. And I don't know about here, but um, back in South Africa, it's not accessible for so many people just because of financial reasons. Um, so, yeah, we, we serve anyone regardless of of um, their finances or situation and just want to bring them into greater greater wholeness, greater healing, and greater um, connection with Jesus. So, yeah, we've got three sons, 16, 18, and 21, so we left them behind, and they're staying on their own. So, <laughs> good news, house is still standing, they're being fed, and, um, yeah, I'm grateful for community who can stand in the gap for us while we're away. So I'm going to be sharing with you today about a topic that I'm actually quite passionate about. Um, I watched my father go through burnout, my husband go through burnout, and I went through burnout. So it's something that not only from a theoretical point of view that I think is important, but from a personal journey as well. Um, I think we live in a culture now that is, dare I say, a burnout culture, um, where we glorify hustle. We glorify busy. You know, there's, it's almost like it's a sign of weakness to rest. And so we set ourselves up to, to go beyond what our bodies can actually handle. Um, and so I want to introduce you to two characters. And as I explain them, um, see if maybe you recognize a little bit of yourself or maybe someone that you know. So the first one is Anna. 
And uh, since the pandemic, she's just been feeling a little bit off. You know, she's struggling to concentrate, feels a little bit like she's in a fog. And um, she's watched some of her colleagues lose their jobs. Her, some loved ones really struggle with illness. People that she knows has passed away. Um, when she watches the news, she's just filled with images of just the horrors that people are dealing with and the brutality of the world. And um, most days, she's exhausted struggling with headaches and body pains. And um, she's starting to feel a bit helpless, unmotivated, and, and depressed. Before the pandemic, Anna really relied on her faith to get her through the difficult times in life. But now she's feeling really confused. She's not even sure what she believes anymore. And she's starting to pull away more and more from community. Um, and so is finding herself increasingly isolated from, from her, her spiritual community. And even though she has a number of friends that she could rely on or she could call out to for support, she just finds she can't bring herself to reach out. The door is locked. Um, she's become more irritable with her friends and with her family. And she wonders why she can't just snap out of it. It's like she's stuck. So her response isn't unusual. She's actually a person who is struggling to cope with um, her, a response to a traumatic event that has impacted her, her community, her friends and family, and the world as she knows it. Now we meet John. John has been involved in ministry for the past six years. And um, he's involved in many different areas from preaching to leading small groups to uh, missions and mercy ministries. Um, he has many one-on-one -on -one sessions with people and is involved in the worship team. Recently, one of, the mentor, uh, one of the leaders that he had mentored quite closely and had walked with for a long time took offense and left the church, but then t also took his whole small group with him. And he found he's been hearing little rumblings of gossip about him, you know, perceptions and, and stories about him that aren't true. And he's starting to feel really overworked, undersupported. The times when he has been vulnerable, it feels like it's been turned against him, as if people are offended about his humanity and his weaknesses. Um, he feels like God is silent and he lacks any motivation to read his Bible. Um, unless it's for the purpose of preparing for a message or something to do with work. He's become cynical and critical. He procrastinates. He's irritable with his co-workers. He's struggling to concentrate. Like Anna, he is constantly tired, experiencing um, pain and digestive issues, tummy problems. And he's starting to use food and alcohol to just numb his anxiety. When he's at home, he just has no energy to engage with his family and just wants to shut the world out. Does this seem familiar to anyone? Can you connect to some of these symptoms? Just out of curiosity, if I can see by a show of hands, how many of you are in ministry in this room? So there's a few of you. I want to share some particularly unsettling statistics with regards to ministry. 75% of people in ministry 
have said that they feel extremely or highly stressed. 40% have experienced monthly conflict with somebody in their church. 80% will not be in ministry in the next 10 years. 91% have experienced burnout. 70% have said that their self-esteem is lower than it was before they went into ministry. They constantly are fighting depression, and they do not have a close friend. And 90% feel like they have not received adequate training for what the job actually demands. So burnout, trauma, compassion fatigue, these are real issues in today's world and, um, and things that we're at risk for. Um, and so I just want to define them quickly. These three terms are different, and yet they're complementary, and there tends to be a lot of overlap. So burnout refers to the physical, emotional, and, and just mental erosion that someone can experience when they feel like they are unsatisfied, powerless, or completely overwhelmed, particularly within their work experiences. Some symptoms might be exhaustion, and whether that's physical exhaustion, mental, emotional, even spiritual exhaustion, it's just your battery is deader than dead. Um, there's a sense of disconnection from yourself, like you feel hardened or numb. You know, you can't, you can't connect with your own emotions. And an increased level of anxiety or depression and a reduced sense of satisfaction in achieving your goals. Um, so this is a big risk for people, particularly Christian leaders and those who are bivocational. When you're having to give 100% at the workplace, but 100% in your church life as well. Um, and for those that have a calling to care for others. And it can also just be a response to that never-ending stress that we find is just part of our norm of living in a modern life. Um, Compassion fatigue refers to the deep emotional exhaustion that we experience when we're listening to other people's stories or when we're caring for other people that are in pain. So a lot of people in the medical profession or those that are, do a lot of counseling or in sort of more mercy ministries have a hard time disconnecting from the stories that they're hearing and they take that pain home with them. And when they get home, they're feeling the weight of somebody else's story. And over time... The weightiness of story after story after story after story of pain, brokenness, trauma, devastation, and the powerlessness to kind of um, uh, protect people or, or to kind of, quote, save them from, from the pain that they're going through takes a massive toll on our hearts and takes a, a toll on our bodies. Um, so people who have naturally high levels of empathy are particularly prone to compassion fatigue um, or because they're aligning, aligning with these traumatic situations. And they can get to that point where they feel like they just have nothing left to give. Has anyone experienced that? Then you can get something called vicarious trauma. And this is where you haven't particularly experienced Personally, the trauma, but you're over-identifying with the trauma that someone else has experienced. Vicarious. Yeah. So like a secondary Not trauma. Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. 
So um, let's say, for example, you are listening to somebody's story of a violent assault, but then later on you start having nightmares about that situation or you start avoiding places that are connected to that person's story. Um, and so it has an impact on your worldview or your personal sense of safety, even though you maybe didn't directly experience it. Um, and so people can start developing symptoms that are similar to PTSD or post-traumatic stress, such as this intrusive imagery or the avoidance of places. Um, highly um, startled, you know, very hypervigilant or easily angered. So these are some things, just, you know, some examples of some symptoms that can lead to burnout or signs that maybe you're dealing with some kind of secondary trauma. Um, and these build up over time and they start impacting not only our professional lives, but our personal lives as well. Oftentimes we hold it together to get through the day and we end up taking it out on the people that we love the most, the people that are closest to us. So our family bears the brunt. So um, this is an interesting this is an interesting study that was done. There, um, there was some research into what are some of the most dangerous jobs in the world. So obviously, one would think like military, police, uh, first responders, journalists on the front lines in, in war-torn areas, or even medical personnel, particularly through the pandemic, would be considered some of the most dangerous jobs. And the statistics were quite high. But there was a cross-denominational study that was done out of the Danielson Institute um, out of Boston University where they looked and interviewed uh, clergy or people in ministry. And the results of that showed that 55% um, of those ministry leaders carried multiple symptoms for PTSD. 35%. Wow had enough to clinically warrant a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder, which then puts ministry higher than military, police, front, uh, first responders, as the most uh, dangerous job in the world for risk for PTSD. Why? Why? There's three factors. The one is that within ministry... You're often um, under-supported. There's lots of financial stress and high expectations and um, a, a lack of a safe place to unpack and debrief. If you think that over 70% earlier um, said that they didn't have a close friend. Secondly, who's the first person that gets a phone call when there's a crisis in the congregation? Pastor. The pastor. They might have the theological understanding to unpack scripture, but they weren't necessarily taught in their studies how to handle the complexities of a family that are, is dealing with um, child abuse or walking a beloved member of your church through, through the process of dying. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. They're ill-equipped. They feel this sense of, I don't know what I'm doing. Mm. And, um, yeah, so, so the, the high levels of stress, um, being exposed to all of these different situations and feeling like they weren't adequately trained. Mm 
So that's just a little freebie for you. Um, so what often happens with us is um, we begin to become over alert, you know, very aware of things that are going on around us. And, um, and so our body responds to this distress, which then releases hormones. And, when the, and then we experience a crash, kind of like a sugar high. And then the sugar high comes to an end and you have a crash. That happens to us hormonally when we're experiencing high levels of stress. And that leads to an exhaustion. And then it gets to a point where we can't climb out of that exhaustion. And we find ourselves in burnout and depression. So there are two types of trauma that I want to just quickly touch on. The one is like big T, capital T trauma. And those are your things like earthquakes and um, car accidents, and getting a, a diagnosis, or um, the sudden loss of, of somebody close to you. They generally tend to be an event or um, something that's completely out of your control, but either a, a one-self or an obvious, like this is pretty hectic. But then you get a whole bunch of little T's, small T's. Those are things like if you grew up in a home environment where there was a lot of fighting or maybe mom struggled with depression and so some days she was present but then for weeks at a time she might not have been able to get herself out of bed and so you didn't know if you were going to have um, food on the table. You didn't know if you would have to find a way to get yourself to school or whether or not you'd have to you know, help your your you know, protect your mom who, from your dad who's, you know, coming home drunk. So it's ongoing. There's no sense of, like, when is this going to end? Does that make sense? Yeah. And so those kind of complex, ongoing little traumas or working in environments where you're constantly being exposed to painful stories just create those high levels of stress that people are, get stuck in and begin to overwhelm. So not everybody will end up kind of with, with these massive trauma responses. Um, some people will, you, you take a car accident and you could have two people in the car and they both respond completely differently to the traumatic event. Some people will come through relatively unscathed, that they're fine, you know, bumps and bruises physically, but it hasn't had too much of an emotional toll on them. But then you get other people who are forever changed. Why is that? So, again, there's some, some reasons for that, or various factors, like their prior trauma history. Um, what are the current stressors in their life? Um, what is their level of resilience? Some people are able to overcome the most phenomenal things because they naturally have this high level of resilience where you get other people who, you know, the smallest little thing and they don't know how to rise up out of it. Um, and then the quality of meaningful relationships is a big, big factor in how people can manage and deal with the traumas and stresses of life. Um, so because a traumatic situation or, or prolonged stress may alter a person's capacity to cope. Individuals may feel like their lives have lost meaning. They might struggle to experience pleasure or things that they used to enjoy no longer interest them. 
Um, they might have difficulty sleeping, whether it be for a couple of days or weeks. Um, and sometimes those symptoms will improve over time. Um, they might have a period of stress, uh, struggling with stress and anxiety. But for some people, that threat remains and they become stuck in those feelings of overwhelm. Um, and it starts to play out in their body, both physically and emotionally. And those are some of the, the you know, that, that's when we can look at somebody who's experiencing post-traumatic stress. So what is the spiritual impact? If you look at the story of Elijah, um, you know, he, he had put himself on the line after being in hiding for three years of drought. Uh, we read about that in 1 Kings 18. And then there's that incredible story at Mount Carmel. Do you remember that? Yeah. yeah. And then, um, but the, the buildup of, of, of the continuous stresses and the oppositions and the struggles that, that he had experienced. There comes a point in chapter 19 where he cries out, I've had enough. I would rather die than go on facing this day in and day out. He had a mountaintop experience, and then I would rather die. And um, we can see how, you know, just just his despair represents the depth of burnout, of what a person can feel. It's the culmination of the major consequences of chronic stress, a loss of purpose in life, having one's self-image destroyed, feeling alone, isolated in the world, being filled with resentment or bitterness, feeling that all is hopeless, what is the point? A lack of enthusiasm for spiritual life, anger at God. We don't like to acknowledge that one, hey? We're far too holy to be angry at God. But we often feel like our suffering is undeserved and that somehow God has failed us. Because if he truly loved me, then why am I having to be in this situation? Um, but we might also struggle with our feelings about being angry with God. And so that causes stress. Um, we doubt God's goodness. And we doubt, um, we doubt our identity in Christ because we no longer feel like our former selves. We struggle with guilt um, because we feel ineffective. And yet we feel guilty for feeling guilty. Is this ringing a bell? Um, and we often end up in a desert experience where we feel distanced from God, dry. And that spiritual barrenness leads to this sense of meaningless. Hence, we get to that place like where Elijah cried out. So when we feel out of control and safety has been taken away, we strive and seek some way to regain a sense of control. And we often do this by overfunctioning or like white knuckling, you know? Um, this, is my, this is my weakness, you know? That like, I'm just going to do more. I'm just going to push on, you know? I'm just, suck it up, buttercup, and let's keep going, yeah. you know? Um, and let's throw in another project while we're at it. Yeah. I mean, I've got nothing left to give, but let's just do more. Um, or under-functioning, where we throw our hands up in the air and go, that's it, I just, I just I can't do anything, I can't make any decisions, and we just want to become helpless and let other people um, pick up the slack for us. Um, we deny our emotions. And oftentimes this also leads 
to inappropriate responses, um, to situations like emotionally vomiting on people who are not responsible Mm -hmm. for our anger. Have you ever had an experience where, I mean, it might be something as ridiculous as somebody cutting in front of you in a line, and suddenly it's like, <sighs> like you want to turn into the Hulk, you know? You just get like overwhelmed with rage and this, you know? And it's like completely inappropriate response to the trigger in front of you. Um, but here's the thing. God wired us. When he created us, he wired our bodies to respond to threat and situations where we feel overwhelmed. But we aren't always taught how to recognize what is being communicated. So we have these bodies that we live in all the time, but it doesn't mean we understand how they work. Um, Barbara Brown Taylor, an author, said that our bodies are prophets And they know when things are out of whack, and they say so. And so I want to spend a lot of time talking about our bodies, talking about the way God uses our own bodies to show us, to warn us, to protect us as we deal with the hard things in life. Um, We have been created with a capacity to move through hardships. He created us with this incredible autonomic nervous system, uh, which is essentially the part of our nervous system that controls our unconscious functioning. How often do you think about your your heart beating, blinking, you know, um, digestion, breathing? They just happen. They just happen. And so there's two parts to this nervous system. The sympathetic which is what drives our fight-or-flight response, okay? So I live in South Africa. You come to visit, and you're walking down the road, and suddenly there's a lion in front of you. And you're going to, you know, maybe you feel like, that's it, I'm going to take on this lion, and I'm going to discover that I've got this, like, supernatural strength like Samson, and I'm going to, like, take it on. Or, like... Suddenly, you you just feel this urge to get out of there, and you run, but you run like you can't get tired, you know? Mm -hmm. Just this overwhelming need to flee. Um, A friend of mine was was mugged a while ago, and two men came up and tried to steal her handbag, Um, and she just thought, not today. And she's (laughs) a tiny woman, and she managed to fight them off. And, I mean, they they stabbed her in the hand, but she did not let go. She went into full-blown fight. Um, she didn't decide it. She didn't stop and make a pros and cons list and go, now I wonder what would be the best solution in this situation. Her body took over and instinctively, instinctively, she began to fight. But then there's another, there's another, um, response, which is the fawn response. And this is where our bodies try to save us by accommodating or pleasing the threat. So in other words, are you hungry? Would you like a sandwich? You know, a lot of kids that grew up in abusive homes learn to survive by doing the fawn response. I'm going to behave however I need to so that this threat won't hurt me. People pleasing is another way of, of, of describing it. Um, again, I had a, another friend. This was actually in the same week. 
and um, he, he was hijacked. And he went into phone response immediately. Strong man. He said, guys, I, I, I'm not looking. I'm not looking at your faces. He got out of his vehicle. There's my car. Just, you know, take it. Just do whatever you want, whatever. And he just got down on the ground and, and tried, to, um, tried to do whatever he thought he needed to do to keep himself safe. And, and they took his car, but he, he was fine. So those are some examples of fight, um, flight, and fawn. That's controlled by your sympathetic nervous system. Your parasympathetic nervous system, um, oh, sorry, your sympathetic nervous system, so fight or flight, it, it stimulates the cortisol and adrenaline, and that's what, mo- that's what mobilizes us to fight or flee. Um, and so in this state, our bodies respond with levels of arousal that correspond with that perceived threat. That's why sometimes you might be in a situation where you just feel mildly triggered, you know? Then you might be in another situation where you feel full-blown overwhelmed and out of control. It's, it's related to that sense of, or the degree of the threat. Okay. Now, our parasympathetic sympathetic nervous system is what uh, pulls our body into freeze mode as a way of coping with, with a sense of terror. We had a foster child that lived with us, and that was his MO. When he felt threatened, he would go full-blown freeze. So I could ask him a question as simple as, um, do you have any homework today? But if he felt like he might get in trouble based on the answer, or he felt triggered, or what have you, he would just, his eyes would go really big. He would stand still like a statue and just stare. And he was physically incapable of uttering a word. It's as if he had turned to stone. That was freeze mode for him. Um, it's our, way, our body's way of trying to protect us. But all of these responses happen without our thinking. Without thinking. Um, and this can, ex- this can happen from like a mild fogginess to like full-on physical collapse to a sense of floating out of your body and being up here like in a helium balloon. Um, if we have a history of trauma or shame, abuse or overwhelm, then we might feel like these sensations in our body are just happening to us. In fact, they might even feel like normal. You mean we're not supposed to feel like this? all the time. Um, But the good news is when I understand why my body is responding the way that it is, I can become empowered to validate that underlying need and work on changing the situation. So now I want to just chat a little bit about the brain. Like, guys, I'm so excited about how God (laughs) created us. Like, it is amazing. So I'm going to totally simplify this. So I'm apologizing in advance to anyone who is, like, medical. Um, (laughs) But I want you to imagine that your brain is like a three-story building. Okay? Right. So the first level, ground floor, is the most primal part of your brain. That's your brain stem. And it works with your limbic system, which is your second floor. Okay, they work together, and they and and the first floor manages your unconscious things. That's your your sleeping, your breathing, your your heart rate, um, and it also determines the response 
with the fight, flight, freeze, or fawn responses, okay? The limbic system, which is the second floor, this is your emotion center and your hormone center. I remember going to um, Universal Studios many years ago, and we went on this amazing roller coaster. My husband's an adrenaline junkie. And um, <laughs> it was based on the Hulk movie. And so it starts off, you're in this like tunnel, and it's all dark, and you get into your little roller coaster seat, and all of a sudden there's these flashing lights, and, and this just like, you just hear this like, warning, warning. And that's kind of what happens when we get triggered in our limbic system, okay? Um, it's like these warning lights go off. And, um, and so our emotions are here, our hormones are here, but it also influences our memories and our behavior. So based on our prior experience, this is where your brain, or from your memories, how your brain determines what the response is going to be. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. And then it sends a message to the ground floor, and the ground floor activates the body. All right? Yeah. Okay. Then we get to the top floor. The top floor is usually the penthouse, right? Where all the, you know, all the fancy stuff is. Well, that's where your prefrontal cortex is. That's your thinking brain. That's the part of your brain where you're able to problem solve, make decisions, think about your thinking, um, kind of um, have empathy, understand empathy, um, nuance. You know, all those complex things that go with thinking. But when we're triggered, our thinking brain goes offline, like when the Wi-Fi gets turned off. So that and all that blood flow goes into the survival parts of our brains and our bodies to keep us alive. That's why we don't know sometimes why we responded the way that we did. Because we actually weren't like that thinking part was turned off. It was turned off. So we are responding instinctively to the stresses around us. But the problem with our modern world and the places in which we find ourselves is our bodies are responding to stresses and threats that aren't actually life-threatening threats. You know these things? Cell phones? I went through a season a little while ago where... Stress was building up, and as a therapist and working in a church, it's it's hard to have boundaries between sort of professional life, ministry life, because it overlaps. You've got people that you're you're friends with and in relationship with, but then there's also people that you are working with in a ministry or a therapeutic context, and people just have access to you all the time, all the time. And there was a point when any time I heard my phone vibrate, my heart would start thudding. I was being triggered by that invasive sense of, what do people want from me now? What do people want from me? You know? Was I in danger? No. But my body was responding as if I was in danger. Okay. Um, So we don't actually have to live offline. God gave us cues. He gave us signs so that we could recognize when we're being triggered. Um, And by paying attention and becoming aware of what's happening, we actually keep our thinking brain online. So 
we don't always have to just result or resort to our fight or flight. Um, so we can learn to read the signals like a check engine light in your car. So our body communicates to us through changes in temperature. If you suddenly feel hot and flushed or like you're going cold, sensations of like tingling in your, in your, in your fingers or your toes or in your face, an urge to just move like I've got to get out of here, um, an increase in heart rate, a change in breathing, um, unexplained anxiety. You don't know why you're feeling anxious, but suddenly you're just anxious. Sudden alertness where you're super aware of your surroundings or feeling like you're trapped or stuck. These could be signs that you're about to go offline. Pay attention. But the thing is, our emotional dysregulation also impacts our ability to have healthy connections with other people. When we deny our feelings, when we shut off and shut down and go into survival mode, we're not recognizing what's going on in here. So how on earth are we going to be able to recognize and understand what's happening in another person? So our relationships take an enormous toll when we are struggling with trauma and burnout. Um, because we begin to block ourselves neurobiologically from our capacity to have empathy. Because where do we experience empathy? Top floor. Top floor. So if we're living in a triggered space, that part's offline. So, um, things like social media can be super triggering. Have you noticed that in the last couple of years? Um, we, we don't know what to do with these feelings inside of us, so we need a way to discharge pain. And so we do it anonymously in the comments section. Have you noticed how mean, how mean we have become as a society? Um, I think collectively we're scared. You know, our security about the future has been rocked. And we're turning to, we want certainty. We want something that we can cling to. And so there's a rise in dualistic thinking, you know, which is, this is good, this is bad. This is right, this is wrong. If you think like me, then you're right and good. If you don't think like me, you're my enemy. You know, you just have to look at politics and, and things like that to see the way in which we use even dualistic thinking as a way to try and um, manage the fear that we're experiencing in the world at the moment. So just take note. Next time you're mindlessly scrolling through Instagram, are you starting to feel anxious with some of the things that you're reading? Notice if your heart rate is changing, if your hope is feeling threatened, and then boundary it. Boundary it. We don't have to look at those things. We don't have to turn the news on and listen to it obsessively every day, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and learn to recognize the warning signs uh, so that we don't have to get to that point of feeling out of control or responding in a way that betrays our value system. <coughs> because when we start responding in a way that val uh, uh, betrays our value system, that then brings guilt and shame and has an impact on our self-esteem, which heightens the stress, which, you know, and so the cycle goes around again. Okay. Um, 
So rather than ignoring our body's signals, we need to recognize that our body is trying to tell us a story. And it's telling us a story and asking us to listen. It's telling us about our joy and it's telling us about our pain. And we have been created to listen to these narratives. Um, yeah. If we ignore or numb or disconnect from our emotions, then our, the wisdom of our bodies will find another way to communicate to us. And if we don't allow our bodies to process their experiences, they will tell us. And that might be through panic attacks or chronic illness or depression or burnout. And I learned this powerful truth the hard way. Um, I'm a social worker. And so I've been trained as a, as a social worker and as a therapist to help people through their stuff, to help people recognize their emotions, to help people listen to their bodies. But that doesn't mean that I'm a good therapist to myself. Um, we're usually the worst, actually. <laughs> and, uh, and so I started caring, even though I knew better. I started carrying home those weights of the traumas that I was, I was dealing with, particularly when working with children, um, that I was over-empathizing and, and over-identifying or connecting to their stories. And I missed the check engine light signals. And I white-knuckled. I worked harder. I pushed harder. Um, I didn't want to rest. Because if I rest and, it, and I rested and it was quiet, then my mind started churning, you know, so I just wanted to push it all down because it was too much. But have you ever taken a Coke bottle and shaken it up? What happens when you open it? It just explodes, right? Okay. Instead of giving myself some time to rest, and you know when you just like, just crack it, and you hear that like hiss, and the gas starts releasing, but it doesn't explode? Give it a little bit of time and you could open it and it's fine. Um, we're scared to do that. We're scared to give ourselves the rest that we need for that pressure to just kind of like release. So I kept going and I ended up with burnout and compassion fatigue and was struggling to process my own personal trauma that I was dealing with and the multiple demands of ministry and family life and stress. And eventually my body broke down. Um, and I had no choice but to become aware of what my body was screaming. And I got sick, but then I didn't get better. In fact, I started getting worse. And after all sorts of tests and what have you, what, what have you um, I, I developed, uh, was diagnosed with a chronic illness, and I've now entered that crazy, uncertain world of a body that I live in, but no longer feels like it belongs to me. Does that make sense? No. And, um, but, it, but it has also been a tremendous grace because through my illness, I have had to give myself permission to be compassionate, not to other people so much as compassionate to me. And that was foreign. That was completely foreign. I learned how to set healthy boundaries I listened to my body and I learned its limits. I learned not to feel shame about my limitations, about my humanity. When I stopped pushing, I began to feel more connected to myself, more connected to my family, more connected to God. 
And I discovered that God wasn't disappointed in me for getting sick. And it didn't diminish my calling or my purpose. We somehow think that if we recognize our weaknesses or if we, have a, if we, we begin to work with our vulnerabilities, that somehow we're going to lose you know, our gifts or our calling. Isn't that weird? Yeah. <laughs> but we do. Um, and so I stopped operating primarily from my own strength, and I learned to ask for help. Ooh, that was tough. Help from God, but help from others too. Um, and I have experienced such deep healing as I've walked through the trauma of dealing with uh, and the grief of dealing with illness. And I discovered the greatest gift, that Jesus is a compassionate witness to our pain. And, um, you know, if you just think of his emotional suffering in the garden, if you think of his physical suffering on the cross, um, he experienced the fullness of humanity and the reality of trauma, of that sheer exhaustion of I've got nothing left to give. He poured it all out. And he showed us how to enter into that experience and not to deny it, or avoid it. Andy Kohler said his sacred invitation to honor our pain is holy work and a journey to which we are all called. So Jesus is comfortable with these spaces. He's comfortable with your burnout. He's comfortable with your exhaustion. And he holds space for the emotions that he created within you. Did you know that there are no bad emotions? When God created us, what did he say? When he created man and woman, what did he say? That it was not just good, but very good. So he created us with our physical bodies, with our minds, with our emotions. And it was very good. So our emotions, even the ones that we perceive as negative, are not bad. They just are. They just are. And so um, he holds space. One of the most incredible passages of scripture for me is found in John 11. And um, it's very familiar. But Jesus went to see Mary and Martha after Lazarus had died. How many days after? Not at the moment, but three days, hey? Four days. And um, he sees the grief. He sees their grief. He sees Mary and the other Jews around Lazarus' tomb, and they're devastated. They're devastated. And his response, Jesus' response, is described in the shortest verse in the Bible. And what is it? Jesus Jesus wept. Jesus cried. Jesus showed emotion. He grieved. He grieved. But we mustn't forget, this wasn't a surprise to Jesus. He knew what he was about to do momentarily. He was going to raise Jesus or Lazarus from, from the dead. But, but, and this is what's so important, he still wept. He knew how the story was going to end. He still wept. He, you know, even though his friend had died, he knew he was going to be raised. He honored and he entered into that place of present grief 
of his friends. They had just lost their dear brother. They didn't know what was about to happen. Um, he didn't shame them. He didn't say, don't be ridiculous. You shouldn't cry. Come on. You should be, you know, get on with it now. There's stuff to be done. He gave them space. He gave them space. He validated their humanity. And um, he lamented with his friends. You know, that is so powerful to be given that permission to grieve, to engage with their emotions. But I've often thought he gave them space to process their emotions, that they could, that they could experience the fullness of the pain and not have it turned off too soon. Um, he gave, you know, he, he, he allowed them to integrate that experience as the creator of their neurobiological structures, he knew that their limbic systems needed to move through the emotion so that it wouldn't get stored in their body as a trauma. Mm-hmm. Isn't that mm-hmm. phenomenal? Yes. Yeah. Phenomenal. Yes. Man, I love Jesus. <laughs> yeah. He didn't rush them. He provided empathy. And patience. Take your pain and imagine Jesus weeping with you, giving you space for your limbic system to process that emotion, for that threat to leave your body, for your thinking brain to come online again so you can connect with his empathy, name the emotion, acknowledge it, work with it. Isn't it beautiful? Hey, this is a model for us to be able to give away to other people, but also, most importantly, like a, um, what is the, the motto of, of um, like the, the Coast Guards, is it? Like first save yourself, you know, or like the oxygen thing that drops down from the airplane, put your ox- oxygen mask on first. We need to be processing and working with our staff if we're going to effectively be able to connect to and work with other people. So Jesus saw the emotional and physical bruises that we have suffered, and he is tender to our humanity. He lived in the constraints of our emotional and physical bodies, and he loves us, and he loves us for it. And he teaches us the value of being compassionate to ourselves. So how do we navigate this? How do we work with this stuff? So I'm going to quickly just go through some practical tools. The first one is self-compassion. Kristen Neff describes self-compassion as having three components, which is mindfulness, self-kindness, and common humanity. So mindfulness, I mean, it sounds like a bit of a woo-woo word, but it's actually just paying attention. So I want you to just take a deep breath right now. Breathe in and out. And close your eyes and just notice what you're feeling in your body. Is there pain anywhere? Your body's temperature? Any thoughts that are popping into your head? Any emotions that are pushing up? Don't judge them. Don't think about them. Just acknowledge them. Oh, there you are. There you are. That's it. That's it. 
Mindfulness gives us the ability to observe something in a non-judgmental way, to become aware of it. We can't acknowledge what we can't observe, you know? We can't acknowledge what is unconscious or not known to us. So mindfulness just helps us become aware of the things that are going on inside. Um, And it helps ground us into the present, into the here and now, so we can stop running away with those what-if thinking, you know? Um, And and just allows us to to just be in the moment. Self-kindness is essentially extending the kindness that you would give to another person. Have you ever thought about how people would respond if you spoke to them the way you speak to yourself? Would you dare talk to your children the way you talk to yourself? Hey? Yeah. So pretend. Even if it has to start with pretending that you talk to yourself the way you would someone you love. With that same kindness, that same grace, that same tenderness and gentleness that you would someone that you deeply care for, start talking to yourself that way. Because we are often the ones who don't give ourselves permission, you know? Um, And then common humanity simply means that our suffering is not in isolation. We're not alone. When we are sucked up into our stuff, we think nobody understands, you know? But actually we do. Look around. Look it around. We share stuff, hey? We We all know what joy is. We all know what fear is. We all know what wonder is. And we all know what anxiety is. We're not alone. And so by embracing that common humanity, I'm not alone, often gives us the courage to reach out so that we actually aren't alone. Ask for help. So build a network of support, friends, family, people in your church, but be intentional about having relationships Be intentional about it. But sometimes you might find yourself in such a a desperate place, or maybe it's not safe for you. You you haven't yet found that network of support. Then please reach out for professional help. Sometimes there's a shame that has been put on from the church, and I don't understand why, that it's somehow less than, uh, or that you don't have enough faith if you go to see a therapist. But... You know, if you think of a midwife, a midwife is trained to help a mother through the birth process. She knows how to bring insight and awareness to help the mother's body respond and open up so that the baby can be delivered healthily. But the midwife doesn't do the birthing. It's the mother who births the baby. So in the same way, a therapist can come alongside and help you to increase your self-awareness or to understand and connect dots and recognize patterns of behavior or just be a safe place to listen. But they're not going to work on your healing harder than you are. They're just a support structure along the way. Um, Sometimes it might mean having a season on medication. Um, And again, there is no shame in that. But it's all about learning how to help our body come back into alignment so that we can become regulated, so we can stay online, so we can recognize what's happening, connect to our emotions, connect to other people, and experience greater freedom than living on autopilot. Moving your body 
Unprocessed emotion gets trapped. When you've been through stress, how often do you come home with a headache? Tense shoulders. They say that something like, I might get this wrong, but up to 80% of people that are are in hospital have stress-related disorders. That somehow stress has played a role. Because our body is telling us, and we're not listening, so move it, get that trapped emotion out. Whether it is going for a massage, or a run, or a jog, or yoga, or Pilates, or swimming, dancing in the kitchen, you know, whatever it is, move that stress out. When I I worked for years in in a school as a school counselor, and I used to get my kids that were struggling with anger to just use their bodies to release that tension. And um, even something like taking Play-Doh and just like throwing it against the wall and imagining whatever is like making them angry is in that ball. But there's something about the release of using your body that just helps release some of that tension. Make time for rest. God told us in his own example that Sabbath is is a holy place. Um, That in this world where we glorify busy and hustle... um, Rest is sacred. Set boundaries. Honestly lament. I absolutely love the Psalms and the way in which they are just so raw and so brutal. Like, I love it when you read at the beginning, like, God, where are you? And how could you, like, do you not care about me? And um, my body is wasting away. And then you get to the end after they've poured out their heart before God. But I will trust in you. And you are the one who will save me. or You know what I mean? They're just honest. Be honest before God with your emotions. Meditation and prayer. Um, meditation on scripture is simply, you know, just focusing on a scripture and reflecting on it in the context of God's love. So, for example, take Psalm 23 and imagine yourself in that scene. You know, imagine God leading you along quiet waters. What does it feel like? You know, laying down in green pastures. I wonder what it would be like to lie next to God in in those green pastures and maybe finding pictures in the clouds, hey? You know, just like allowing the words of Scripture to wash over you and comfort you. Um, Let them quiet your anxious thoughts and, and soothe that nervous system. Breath prayers are incredible. Again, when we're triggered, we don't breathe properly. But if you breathe in for four seconds and out for six seconds, it overrides your nervous system and tells your, your, your body that you're safe. In for four, out for six. So you can use scripture, breathing in, your grace, exhale, is enough for me. Inhale, there is no fear, exhale, in your love. Inhale, I will not be afraid. Exhale, for you are with me. Inhale, peace of Christ. Exhale, guard my heart and mind. Scripture is amazing, amazing in just grounding us into ourselves, but into the arms of our Father. You know, when my kids were, were dysregulated, when my kids were upset, my mama heart just wanted to gather them close. Hold them. Just hold them. Comfort them. You know, and it used to like break my heart a little bit when they would fight me, you know, and just like, but just let me comfort you. 
when our Heavenly Father is going, just come, let me comfort you. Let me soothe you. So as we collectively learn to become aware of our trauma, how we're triggered, the way that our body and our emotions work together, we can begin that healing journey. Jesus shares in our suffering. He holds compassionate space for our grief. He doesn't rush us. He doesn't shame us. Um, but he's a compassionate witness to the holy work of being human. And we do this, just as a reminder, through self-compassion, which is mindfulness, self-kindness, and common humanity, knowing we're not alone. Asking for help, seeking professional help when we find ourselves stuck, moving our bodies to release that pent-up tension, lamenting boundaries, um, and using scripture, meditation, and breathing, connecting to God's love for us, we can still our minds, regain our peace, and live a wholer online life. Mm. Any questions? <laughs> We've got a few minutes left. Yes. Yes. Uh, what do you think about when um, you seek prayer for fear, mm. yes. and then um, the person trying to help you says, you need to ask God for forgiveness that, for your fear? Uh, because you, you don't trust him. I think we shame people a lot because of our discomfort with emotions. To be honest. Projections. Yeah. Because we are uncomfortable. It's triggering us. We have to find a reason why they're in fear. Instead of going, let's just acknowledge the fear. It is what it is. It's fear. We can ask questions as to and explore and dig a little bit to see what's underneath it. And but but to have to, you know, this is just my personal opinion, but um, I think we need to guard against putting judgments on people and on emotions. I'll give you here's just a personal vulnerable moment here. But one of the things that I've struggled with as someone with chronic illness is calls for prayer for healing. Not because I doubt God will heal me, because I know beyond a shadow of doubt I will be healed. I just don't know when, (laughs) but I will be. Um, But whenever I get prayed for healing, I experience peace, complete peace. I'm not healed, but my goodness, there is nothing like the peace of God. And And that is enough. That is enough, and then not yet, I can deal with that. But what is so hard is I'll give you one example of this is in the same prayer session. People are praying for me. The one person said to me, the reason you are sick is a spirit of fear. And they, try, they were trying to deliver me. From, and I'm going, no, no, that's not it. <laughs> and it wasn't. <laughs> and then the other person praying for me said, well, you know, the reason that you're not healed is uh, it's unbelief, mm-hmm. yeah. you know? When at the end of the day, at the end of the day, I don't need an answer or reason because my healing, God's goodness is not dependent on my healing. God is God and he is good and he gives good gifts to his children. And to put that responsibility on somebody as, uh, and to kind of judge them or blame them for their lack of healing, I just think is our own fear. Mm-hmm. 
of the unknown. Because how, what, what does this say about me if I prayed for someone and they weren't healed? Does that make sense? Yes. Another one very close to this one. Isn't it very common that people are asked to forgive others too early? Too early. They're not, they're not ready in they're that process. Ready. Exactly. So they just do it because they're told. So they go through the motions, but if they haven't got to that place where there's enough awareness as what's going on, you know, identification of the emotions or the experiences, and you rush it. If you think of a baby that is born premature, it might go through life perfectly functional, but will have um, delays or developmental um, issues because it was born too soon. And I think sometimes even in our healing journeys, we want to rush people through their healing. And not enough has been discovered, not enough time in those, those, those secret places with God where they're learning and finding safety and growing um, to a place where they can work with those deep traumas um, so that they can come through the other side like um, Jesus did with, with, uh, at, the, at Lazarus's tomb. We want to just, we want to rush to the end. So people might go through the motions, but they're still dealing with that stuff inside because it was too soon. So I think it, there's, there's a high level of sensitivity. Um, and, and that's why I'm saying work on yourself. Become comfortable with uncertainty. Become comfortable with discomfort. There's a saying in social work that says lean into the discomfort. You know, it's amazing. Whenever people cry when they're in a session with me, Nine times out of ten, I'm so sorry. They apologize for their emotions. Like, I'm so okay with emotions. Please cry. Please. You know, we want to shut down pain because we don't want people to suffer. But actually, we're not giving them permission to move through their processes. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Any others? I just want to say thank you so much. Can I just pray for us quickly? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Heavenly Father, I just thank you. As the creator of of us, <laughs> the one who put us together, who knit us together in such remarkable, significant, and intricate ways. Help us to honor your creation by giving ourselves permission to feel, giving ourselves permission to heal, giving ourselves permission to go to those places of trauma and pain and exhaustion and burnout that might make us feel anxious or stressed, but help us to find safety because we know you're holding our hands. Help us to crawl into your arms so that you can comfort us, so that we can allow our bodies to just relax, that we can breathe in the truth of your love, the truth of your peace. Holy Spirit, I pray that you will just settle gently on us now. I thank you that you are here. Lord, I want to honor those vulnerable, vulnerable spaces in each person's heart and life. You know exactly what they're dealing with, exactly what they're going through. And I thank you that you have been a compassionate witness and a tender midwife. 
And I just pray that you will empower us to find the courage to walk in greater wholeness, greater honesty, greater self-compassion, and to give ourselves the permission to embark on the journey of healing. I thank you that you are our healer. And in you we have hope. In you we have freedom. In you we have joy. Thank you, Lord. We bless you. Amen. Amen.